Um, shoot, Tony, I just touched the, the angle. Did I mess everything up? Continuity error. I know. The Reddit, they're going to be going crazy. <laughs> Everyone's gone now. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Chadwick Matlin, a deputy editor at 538. Galen is out sick, so we're improvising here. And on today's show, we'll be discussing God, COVID, and the midterms. So the usual stuff for this podcast. We'll dive into a new poll about whom Americans blame for misfortune. Is it a higher power or just the unending, uncontrollable, unyielding chaos of the universe as we live in it? And then we'll pivot to what causes so much of our misfortune these days, COVID-19. And namely, we'll discuss the Omicron variant of the novel coronavirus, how concerned Americans are and should be, and what it might mean for politics in the coming months. And then finally, it's time for the horse race stuff. Who's running in 2022? Who's not? And what that tells us about how politicians are sizing up their chances in the midterms and beyond. And I have a feeling that Stacey Abrams, Beto O'Rourke, and Dr. Oz will all be mentioned. So a lot on our plate, the celestial, the existential, the terrestrial. And to help us make sense of it all are three of my colleagues, politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Chad. Glad you could be with us. And we've got senior writer and legal reporter Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hello, Amelia. Hey, Chad. And elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Chad. All right, guys, let's begin with good use of polling, which this week is prompted by a new poll from Pew Research Center about faith and finding explanations for ineffable tragedy, essentially. Pew asked 6,500 people about the philosophical questions that we walk around with every day, the kind of thing that you maybe spend hours discussing, I don't know, like on the library roof with that person that you were trying to impress during freshman orientation week like I maybe did. The poll is full of fascinating nuggets. The vast majority of Americans, over 85%, at least somewhat ascribe misfortune and suffering to the vagaries of the universe rather than a higher power, for example. 68% of Catholics think people who don't believe in God can make it to heaven, but only 21% of evangelicals think the same. And the majority of Americans say they thought about big questions like the meaning of life in the past year. So before we get to the good use of polling and the methodology and the research design, I'm curious, Amelia, you do a lot of thinking about religion and politics. Were you surprised by the numbers that were in this pupil? You know, I wasn't on the whole. And that's because I think from a kind of theological perspective, which I very rarely get to talk about on this podcast, so I'm, I'm excited. You know, this is kind of like the way that religion and and in particular Christianity is structured, right? It's to help us make sense of suffering and to help people understand sort of what role does God play in a world where bad things happen all the time. I mean, we're obviously living through a global pandemic right now, but people in their everyday lives are always dealing with issues like illness and loss. And a lot of Christian theology in particular helps people sort of work through that without coming to the conclusion that there is a man up in the sky who is saying, Amelia, it's time for a bad thing to happen to you right now. So I thought it was a really interesting poll. I like polls like this a lot, not to tip my hand for the good use of polling, bad use of polling part of this, but I didn't think it was too surprising on the whole. I'm curious what other folks think though. 
So one thing I thought that was really interesting in the poll was this disconnect of like America's puritanical Calvinist roots on display with 71% saying that suffering is mostly a consequence of people's own actions. Yet a similar share, 69% said suffering is mostly a result of the way society is structured. And I just thought that two contradictory looks at that question and both almost equally represented in the poll reflect some of our larger politics too, not just kind of how people think about theology and God. Yeah, what I liked about this poll was that it got into, I think, the worldview that we all walk around with that maybe isn't the political ideology that we walk around with, but surely informs what we think is the right thing to do and for our own family and then also for the country potentially. And I think um, we've done some reporting and you've read some stories about the role that this kind of relationship with a higher power and with destiny and fate has played in the pandemic response as well. That we've had a lot of conversations about what one can do to protect yourself and others from the pandemic. And some vaccine hesitant Americans or people against vaccine mandates, they've at least cited this idea that whatever God's will is, is God's will. And, and doesn't, you know, if, if it's my time, then it's my time. And when you actually look at this poll, you see that there is a some percentage of Americans who believe actually in that idea when you remove it from COVID or from the politics of COVID. But the vast majority of Americans do think that it's people who are causing pain and suffering to one another. Well, and I'll just jump in and say that, I mean, this isn't just in the context of the pandemic. Um, Pew did a poll about what people think God's role is in politics back in 2020. And they asked about whether God chose Trump and Obama to be president. And very small shares of Americans also think that God is sort of up there picking winners and losers because God agrees with policies. It was 5% say God chose Trump to become president because God approves of Trump's policies. That was in 2016. Again, this poll was before the 2020 election. And 3% said that about Obama. And then a bigger share, though, said that the election must be part of God's overall plan, but it wasn't necessarily God saying, I like what Trump says, you know, I want a wall between the U.S. and Mexico, so Trump is going to be president. And I think that's a kind of interesting distinction, too, whether people believe in a divine master plan that we're all part of and we just kind of can't understand the pieces, but it's leading somewhere versus directly intervening in specific events and directing the course of what happens in people's lives. I think something like a global pandemic or an election, it's maybe a little easier for people who do believe that God has a hand in what happens in their lives to sort of see it as part of a broader trajectory that we've been set on rather than the hand of God, again, coming down and steering things in one direction or the other. I really couldn't shake the context of the pandemic in reading this poll. It obviously wasn't just about the pandemic, but it makes me think of a story that Natalie Jackson, who's the research director at the Public Research Institute for Religion, had written earlier this year that was looking at why so many evangelicals won't get vaccinated. And it's what we all are touching on about this idea of, you know, every 
everything in life happens for a reason, which 68% said in that poll was how they felt. And so in their own polling, they had found that 88% of white evangelicals believe that God controls everything. And that's why some don't want to get vaccinated because it's God's will. There's also a lot of end times thinking that's present in evangelical faiths and the pandemic can be a manifestation of that. And prior research also shows that some evangelical Christians will rationalize illnesses like cancer as God's will, which I think you're also seeing play out in the pandemic. And so, and so, right, while most Americans kind of say, you know, bad things happen to good people, a lot of this is outside of our control. I just thought it was interesting how a lot of Americans still, though, also fall into this category of, wait, well, either things happen for a reason, God has a hand in it, or like people are somehow still accountable to this, I think plays out in the pandemic, but elsewhere as well. Emily, I wanted to ask, you've been doing a lot of work on abortion and obviously therefore on the religious right and how the religious right has made arguments to try and make a moral argument about restricting abortion rights. And I'm wondering how all that intersects here with what we're talking about now, which is that abortion has long been discussed as a moral issue, and yet it's people who have to do the work to change the laws, right? Or, or to challenge the law. And I'm wondering how all that squares with potentially a group of people who think that it's God's will to change laws in a specific way. It's really interesting. And I think of a phrase that you'll hear a lot if you go to a conservative Christian conference or confab of some kind, which is, I'm here for a time such as this. It's from the story of Esther in the Bible. And basically, Esther is in a position where she can intervene and save the Jewish people from an almost genocide at the hands of a genocidal maniac who is the right-hand man to the king that she happens to be married to. And she's Jewish, so she is in this unique position where she can stand up and intervene for her people. And her uncle says to her, you were here for a time such as this. And this is a phrase that folks will say a lot when they're talking about policy issues and sort of intervening in the political space, that you are here to sort of move things on the trajectory toward the right and the good. And I think that's very much the way that folks who view abortion as this kind of moral catastrophe see themselves within the legal and political space. We heard a lot of comparisons between Roe versus Wade and Plessy versus Ferguson during the oral arguments on abortion at the Supreme Court last week. Plessy versus Ferguson, of course, is the decision in the late 19th century that instituted separate but equal. And when you talk to folks in the anti-abortion pro-life movement, they'll sort of say, you know, where we're at with abortion is we're moving toward abortion's Brown versus Board of Education. We're moving toward this moment when things will be righted. So it is this interesting nexus between feeling that you're part of God's plan, feeling that things are not right in the world, that we live in a fallen world where things are unjust, bad things happen to good people, the world is not in balance, and that you as a person have free will and you have the agency to move things in that direction, but also that you are part of a bigger divine plan that is moving the world in that direction as well. And I don't think that's really contradictory for people. I mean, I know like the idea of having free will within God's divine plan can sound a little like, well, how can you have both of those things? But I think it's the idea that you are in a place in this plan where you can step in and intervene and help God's will happen. And that is how 
many people see their role in lots of political fights and sort of bringing the country back to the place where it's supposed to be. All right, so we've done a lot of discussion about the way that this intersects with politics, but let's actually answer the question, is this God's use of polling or bad use of polling? So there's something hanging over this poll, which is we don't know the answers to these questions. They are inherently unanswerable, depending on your your worldview, I suppose. And Pew has an interesting methodological note in the poll that says that they really wrestled, the, the research center really wrestled with how you measure these kind of big philosophical things when people's explanations for the unknowable things in life might be their own and might not be something that a pollster could think about before they actually ask the question. And so what they end up doing was giving a variety of ways to make sense of the causes and consequences of suffering. And then they gave the respondents the opportunity to fill in the blank, essentially, to provide their own reasons why terrible things happen to good people sometimes. And Jeffrey, I was thinking, you spent a lot of time in polls, and I was wondering what you thought about this hybrid of giving people pre-existing language to say they support or don't support, while also giving the opportunity to fill in the blank. I mean, I think it's kind of a fascinating way of trying to get people's opinions. I mean, just take an example, like the exit polls. You know, we talked about those a lot after the the Virginia election uh, in November, um, looking at exit poll data. But the thing with the exit poll is they might ask, oh, what was the most important issue? But they only give the respondents four choices. So sure, maybe a lot of them said schools were really important or the economy. But, you know, at the end of the day, they were still just picking from a list of four. This gives you an opportunity to have a much wider range of responses by getting people's own words, and then you can try to group them in some way. For example, I think Gallup does something like this when they ask about the most important problem that the country faces when they talk to respondents, and then they try to group them together as best they can after hearing the responses. So I I think it's a cool way of doing it in terms of maybe you're widening the scope of potential answers. You're not beforehand narrowing the range of answers for people. Because at the end of the day, especially with a subject like this, whereas we've touched on it, people's own explanations for things could be very idiosyncratic, very, very specific to them. I think it gives you a nice opportunity to really broaden the range of potential answers. Of course, I don't think this is really feasible for a lot of polls. Uh, this is a, a very large poll. Clearly, the subject matter is really really big. If you're thinking about like an election poll or even like issue polls, you know, a lot of pollsters might not have the resources to go in and actually do this sort of thing. But I think it's a cool example of what you can do with the survey in terms of getting that very specific response uh, by individual. So I'm hearing good use of polling from Jeffrey Skelly. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I would, I would say this is a pretty good use of polling for sure. Okay. Amelia already tipped her hand. She loves the poll. Sarah? I know. I feel like now I need to be contrarian. But no, I, I think it's a good use of polling, particularly as I think, again, I couldn't separate my thoughts of the pandemic and what we know in particular about white evangelical Christians and how this kind of helps understand how they think about COVID, but also just like more broadly um, worldviews and religion. So- I like this poll. I really like polls like this. Please do more polls like this, Pew and other pollsters. One thing I wish this had included is more context about how people are actually experiencing the pandemic. Because I looked at this and one of the things I was thinking about is the fact that just being religious is increasingly correlated with political identity. And there's actually some evidence that people's political identities are at a point where they're shaping people's religiosity, whether they're determining whether that person identifies as more and less religious. So looking at this 
I think it's a little bit tricky to separate what's like a really religious worldview of COVID and what's being influenced by politics. And one of the reasons that I would have been really interested to see these results based on people's experiences is I'm just curious, are people thinking about this differently if they had a loved one die of COVID? Are they thinking about this differently if they live in a community that's been really hard hit by COVID or if they don't know anyone at all who has gotten really sick from COVID? You know, people who lost their jobs, people who didn't lose their jobs, people who've been struggling with childcare and and housing insecurity issues for the past year and a half. I mean, this has affected people in so many different ways. And some people have been hit really, really hard and other people are in a position where they're much less likely to have been hurt economically, less likely to have gotten COVID themselves or to have seen a loved one get really sick from COVID. So I was left with this wondering, do those experiences shape the way people are thinking about these big questions? And do they have the potential to kind of break through these views that you think of as being pretty set, like people's religious views, you know, or something that they they've presumably given a lot of thought to and they're pretty certain about, the same with people's political views. And on the other hand, living through a pandemic can be you'd think, a pretty worldview-altering experience. So I would have loved to see a little more of that in the poll, just how people living through the pandemic is or isn't changing the way they're thinking about these questions. Okay, good use of polling, but could be better. Always striving for more perfection. I'm realizing as we're talking that if you wanted to write a column about religion and politics, a really good name would be Bully Pulpit. You know, it's got all the different meanings, guys. That's I'm saving that one for later. Chad, you, you can't throw out our good ideas on the podcast. You gotta save it, them. Yeah, but if we want more of this kind of coverage, Amelia, the only thing stopping it is a clever name. That's why more outlets aren't doing religion and politics. So we have to spread the wealth. All right, let's leave it there on this issue. And next up, we're going to talk about COVID-19. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As we've all learned by now, it is very difficult for the world to put COVID-19 behind it. And during the Thanksgiving break, scientists identified a new variant of the novel coronavirus named Omicron. Some people are pronouncing it Omicron on this podcast. I'm saying Omicron. That an Omicron might soon eclipse Delta as the dominant variant worldwide, or at least that's the fear from scientists. But we should emphasize the might in that sentence. Scientists do not yet know most of what we will soon know about Omicron. I've seen estimates of about two weeks before we know answers to some important questions, like whether it really spreads more easily than Delta. Does it break through the vaccine's protections more easily than than Delta does? Does it cause severe illness when someone does get sick? We've seen some anecdotal reports of it maybe causing actually less severe illness. And then that has all sorts of knock-on questions as well, which is if the dominant strain isn't getting people as sick, is that actually a good thing? We, we want Omicron to, to eclipse Delta. But for now, we know that Omicron is real. Um, it's already in the U.S. Uh, and in, I think last I saw, um, it was over a dozen states. 
um, and that it might alter the fragile norms that we've established over the, over the past two years. We also know that Americans are thinking about it. Recent polling suggests that somewhere around 50 to 60 percent of Americans are somewhat or very concerned about Omicron. Sarah, let's let's start with you. I think you edited the piece that aggregated the polling on, on that issue. When you saw those numbers, did they surprise you that over half of Americans are already worried? To be honest, they did. I mean, we're not talking about that big of a difference, six points, but looking at polling from Harris that had looked at concern around the Delta variant earlier this summer, 72% had said they were concerned, whereas now 78%. So again, not a huge difference here. I think you could maybe say that people are equally as concerned as they were with Delta, but it certainly seems to be something, despite some reports, as you were saying at the outset there, Chad, that maybe this isn't as contagious or isn't necessarily um, as deadly as Delta has proven to be. Americans do seem to be really concerned about the spread of it. And at the same time, Jeff, they aren't yet willing to make significant behavioral alterations to the way that life is working right now, at least. There was a poll from Morning Consult at the end of November, so right after Omicron was found, that showed 44% of people polled supported closures of businesses and government facilities in order to help protect from Omicron, which was much lower than things like mask mandates or, or something like that. And, and I'm wondering, Jeff, what you see in that number, which 44% is high in the sense that it's almost half of the country, but at the same time, it shows the majority of the country wants to keep life as it is at the moment. Right. I mean, I think it reveals perhaps a fatigue with the idea of shutdowns and various other more large-scale restrictions. I mean, I think the poll suggests people are generally supportive of doing COVID testing, obviously large percentage support getting vaccinated, doing things like social distancing, other such behavior. But I think the idea of lockdowns again and really closing things down, there's such a large difference in support for that from many of the other things that were asked about that it, it suggests to me that that's just sort of a step that people just don't want to take again because we've, we've been through that once. This has been going on for God, what are we at, like a year and a half now of dealing with COVID-19 in the United States or more? And so fatigue is the word that comes to mind for me when I see that number. Amelia, I remember when we the pandemic first arrived, you and I were working on some stories together around how the decision-making about the pandemic was ultimately a decision-making about our comfort in people dying or going to the hospital. And you had done some reporting around the financial value, essentially, of a life and, and how the government measures that. And I'm wondering now, almost two years later, how you're thinking about that initial work you did in 2020 and where society has essentially found its equilibrium on this question of what we're willing to do to stop suffering, like we were talking about in, in the first segment, and what feels like a step too far. It is interesting to think about the contrast between right at the beginning of the pandemic and now in terms of how I think we're coming to terms with the idea of, you know, this is a disease where we're willing to take on some amount of risk in order to keep the rest of society functioning. But at the beginning of the pandemic, it was so incredibly unknown and it was so devastating and we really, you know, sort of things felt really out of control. And it really did feel like if you were asking people to go to work at that moment, you were asking them to put their lives on the line. Obviously people are still dying of COVID-19 and they're still getting very sick, but I think there is, because we have better treatments, 
because there's more of a sense that this is a disease that even if there are new variants, that we kind of have a handle on it a little more scientifically, we have vaccines, that there is more of like a, a kind of calculus that we take with all kinds of things, right? Like cars are really dangerous. And yet we get in cars and we drive in them every day. And the same thing with lots of other stuff that, that happens in our lives. So I think what we are seeing more and more is people and companies and the government kind of working out what levels of risk are we comfortable with? You know, if a company wants to send a significant share of its workers back into an open office space, do you have to be sort of thinking in the back of your head, okay, there's going to be some level of COVID spread that happens in this space that was built pre-pandemic, and are we comfortable with that? And I think people are not super comfortable with the type of calculation that the government tends or has done in this like value of a human life calculus, but I think that is part of what we're all weighing now, and especially what institutions are weighing as they're thinking about whether people come back to work. And the government is also weighing and thinking about whether businesses should be open or closed. So, Sarah, what would have to change for Americans to start welcoming some type of more severe lockdown again? Would it be that the vaccines aren't effective against Omicron. Like that's actually the only thing that would bring us back to that first frenzy of of March and April of, of 2020. Or is that not even enough? That at this point, you know, there's a difference obviously between what I personally do and what I want the government to do. And are we past, because of fatigue that I think Jeffrey mentioned, are we past the point where there's anything where Americans will want the government to limit their ability to, live a quote-unquote normal life? I think the bar is certainly high, as you suggest in that question. I think what we saw in the early spring of 2020 was unprecedented in terms of concern, the rate at which people were dying. But as Amelia was saying, now with the vaccine, even as the virus continues to spread and mutate, there seems to generally be like some greater form of protection or resilience in terms of contracting the disease. And so, right, I think you look at polls and Americans' optimism has ebbed and waned. Prior to Delta, people were really like, okay, things are back to normal. But polls even now kind of suggest this was conducted in November, a Yahoo News YouGov poll, but 74% of Americans said things were returned to normal. I think that kind of begs the question, like, well, what is normal now? And I think all of us are kind of collectively under undergoing, redefining what that is, because we haven't returned back to this point where we were prior to March of 2020. And even before that, coronavirus was in the country earlier. And so I think people then are taking those calculus, as Amelia was saying about the type of risk they want to incorporate in their own lives. But I thought that morning consult poll that you and Jeffrey were talking about earlier was just really stunning in the sense of large majorities of Americans, they're good with social distancing, they're good with with booster shots. They're good with, you know, wearing a mask inside, but they do not want businesses. They do not want the government. They don't want schools to shut back down. And I think it would really have to be something striking for us to be back in that position. I was really interested to see that 74% of Americans think that life is back to normal because, I mean, like I have a baby, so I think my life is 
very different than other people's because it's a, I'm a small unvaccinated person who can't wear a mask in my house. But even so, there are so many things like you can't, you can't like go to a concert really in the way that you did before. Like there are just like so many things that are different. And I wonder if that's part of the balancing that is happening right now, that we've kind of decided that normal is a certain level of acceptable living like schools are open, you can eat out in a restaurant, you can ride on public transportation, but a lot of people are still working from home. You know, there are restrictions in a lot of different areas. You do have to wear a mask. And so I wonder if that's part of why we see this really big reluctance to go back, because there's a sense that we're already making all these compromises in what we consider normal to be. And We've kind of wrapped our heads around, okay, this is like what the world is like now, but we really, really don't want to roll back further. Yeah, I mean, I would would challenge you on that a little bit because yes, there are vaccination requirements in many places, especially in, in more democratically controlled places. But I went to a Boston Bruins game over Thanksgiving. 20 something thousand people were in the stadium. It was my first large indoor event. I had masks on, the vast, vast, vast majority of people did not. The stadium put up a PSA on the Jumbotron. It said, when you're not eating and drinking, city of Boston mandates that you need to be wearing a mask. And then the next thing on the Jumbotron was the equivalent of a kiss cam that just panned over the crowd that didn't have masks on, right? And so I think there's a big gap between what rules may be and what enforcement of those those, those rules are. And in New York City, at least, you can go to a concert, you'll be screened for a vaccination at the front end, but then no one's making you do anything once you're inside that building. I think that, yes, we have actually reached a new normal in how many checkpoints and gateways there are in some places, but I would think that most Americans at this point are able to behave the way that they want to behave within the pandemic without the threat of enforcement or, or something like that getting in their way. In New York City, I think it's 80% of people are vaccinated. And so 80, most people are able to go to the restaurant and not be turned away from the restaurant. In plenty of other states, you've seen, obviously, the removal of mask mandates and the, and the removal of vaccination mandates. And so life is whatever you want it to be there. And so to me, I can totally buy the idea that three quarters of the country think that they are back to what normal is, because normal could just be, I get to do what I want. But then why do you think so many people are supportive of something like mandatory mask usage? Is that because people recognize that we're still in sort of a state of flux and there are these new variants coming up and there may be a need to roll back? Because I read that and I was kind of like, well, that's actually not such a huge ask for a lot of people. I mean, at least masks are mandatory in the county where I live. So like I go to the gym pretty much everyone is wearing a mask. So, I mean, I think part of the challenge is that this is super local. And what I'm experiencing now in Montgomery County, Maryland, is very different than what I was experiencing when I lived in Southern Indiana. Um, And so, you know, I think what normal means in different parts of the country varies a lot. But, you know, if people are not having to wear masks to their Bruins game, why are they so happy to, to jump back to that reality, do you think? Or not happy to, but willing to. Yeah, sorry, just to clarify, to get into the Bruins game, you needed to be vaccinated and you need to be wearing a mask as you went through security. And then the moment that those two checks were over, no one gave a hoot. I mean, there was no, no one was enforcing anything. 
putting the validity of that aside, I think that there is an acknowledgement and understanding among many Americans that we need certain checks and balances, but perhaps a confidence in their own ability to know what's best for them or what's best for their family or whatever else, that they'll navigate it as they see fit. And if you look at that morning consult poll that, we were, that we've been discussing, 79% agree in some type of social distancing. Because like, why wouldn't? Fine, so be it, right? And no one's coming into your house to stop it from happening the way that they were, that your neighbor could call the cops on you or something, the, the way it was in, in April of 2020. But this idea of going to that next step of closing businesses and government facilities, that's where your ability to live the life that you want to live is infringed upon. It goes back to, I think, what Amelia was saying, like, are, are people considering that normal now? And it seems to suggest yes. And, you know, I would argue that having gone to a few concerts now where you wear the mask inside, like, it's not the same. But, you know, it could be that people are kind of adjusting to that and rebalancing expectations around what normal means. Because as you're saying, Chad, you know, maybe the larger concerns around things closing or mandates being enforced, people are leery of that. And so kind of embracing this new weird hybrid period that we all live in. Okay, let's leave it there. And next, we're going to talk about 2022 midterms. Who's running? Who's not? Why aren't some people running? Why are some people running? But first, now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. As 2022 approaches, we're beginning to have a better sense of who's seeking office in the midterms. Plenty of incumbent Democrats are bowing out, perhaps sensing a Republican wave. But then plenty of big-name Democrats are also leaning in, perhaps sensing, I don't know. Well, that's what I want to discuss. What makes a person want to run in the midterms first? sit it out? So let's start with Democrats, and then we'll get to Republicans later. Jeff, let's start with you. Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams have both declared runs for governor in southern states that are drifting toward Democrats. But given what we saw in Virginia and New Jersey, would probably be a reach for Democrats in in 2022. So when you heard that O'Rourke and Abrams are running, did that surprise you? Abrams' candidacy did not surprise me. I think she's been hinting and more than hinting for a long time that she was going to take another shot in 2022 after narrowly losing in the 2018 gubernatorial election against Republican Brian Kemp, who now has his own primary challenge to deal with from now former U.S. Senator David Perdue that was just announced. So I think Abrams figured, look, Georgia's been trending to the left to some extent, and I might be able to overcome the midterm headwinds of having my party in the White House. Also, I think when she started, even perhaps we can't know for sure, but we've known that she's hinted at the idea she'd run for governor basically since she lost last time. So maybe she's just sort of decided and laid out all the the groundwork for this, irrespective of which party was going to be in the White House, um, even if she might have had a better chance based on what we know traditionally about midterm elections if a Republican were in the White House than a Democrat. You know, with Beto O'Rourke, you know, I guess I'm not surprised because we saw some hints in the month or so leading up to his announcement that he was really, he, he might indeed actually run. So I guess in that sense, it's, it's hard to be surprised when you're given a, a month's heads up that this was a real possibility. I think if you had told me in April 
or something, I might have been more surprised. At the same time, there are maybe reasons why O'Rourke would run. And I, you know, even if he's got an uphill battle against Texas Governor Greg Abbott, at the end of the day, O'Rourke is probably the best known potential statewide Democrat to run in Texas. Obviously, he came very close in 2018 to winning against Republican Senator Ted Cruz. Didn't have a great 2020 presidential campaign. But I think in, in the sense of if you're Democrats and you want a high-profile candidate who's going to turn people out, who's going to engage the party base, and so you don't end up with a situation where the party base just doesn't show up as much, O'Rourke's maybe in the best position to energize the base of the party of any Democratic name in the state of Texas. And so I think maybe that was an argument that was made to him. You know, maybe you can turn around and run again for Senate in 2024, coming off of the 2022 gubernatorial election if you don't win. And again, if you at least put in a decent showing, it'll set you up for another run. I mean, I do think we know that losing twice in a row, like in 2018 and potentially in 2022 for O'Rourke, doesn't necessarily look great. And maybe in the end, you you lose if you try to run again uh, in the future. At the same time, though, I, I do think that that might have been the pitch behind closed doors that made O'Rourke go, yeah, you know, this is worth it to me. It's worth me taking this shot, even if I know I'm going to have a tough time and it's going to be really hard to actually win. If I put in another good showing, it doesn't look as bad because people know it's an uphill fight. So maybe that, maybe that was a, a factor in his decision making. Yeah, but oof, how many times is he going to run? No, I'm, I'm referencing, you know, 538, we had looked at this question, Alex Samuels and Mary Radcliffe on perennial candidates, candidates who don't win and run again, like what are their odds? And so in our analysis of U.S. Senate, governor and presidential races since 1998, out of 121 candidates, only 33 managed to win after having lost once already. And as Jeffrey mentioned, you know, O'Rourke definitely falls into that category. And if you count his, you know, failed presidential bid as well. You know, it's even worse news in the sense of only one candidate, current Senator John Kennedy in Louisiana, has won office after having lost twice. I think Abrams is kind of a bit more complicated, as, as Jeffrey was getting at, in that her playbook arguably is what helped Warnock and Ossoff win in Georgia earlier this year. For much of the last few decades here, the Democrats' playbook in the South has put candidates forward that kind of tend to take more conservative stance than perhaps the national party and also, you know, embrace white candidates, white candidates who have tended to be men. Abrams clearly showed that that didn't necessarily need to be the only playbook that worked in the South. And then Warnock and Ossoff were able to kind of take that to fruition. It's going to be a interesting test case of, you know, maybe it's not even a rematch against Kemp, given the primary challenge now that Purdue is trying to mount. I think it's also worth noting that some politicians have extremely large egos and confidence that they can be the exception to the rule. So we shouldn't totally rule that out as also a factor in all this. <laughs> Just to be brutally honest, you know. <laughs> what else is there to do if you're Stacey Abrams and Peter work when there is a cycle that you could be participating in, but maybe want to sit out? Is part of this that this is what politicians do? They run for office. And so I think Stacey Abrams obviously did a very good job of burnishing her reputation and, and her image in the intervening three years since her last run. But at some point, if you're a politician, you got to do the politics, right? Yeah, I mean, look, politicians oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes act strategically. So I think Abrams has pretty clearly been doing that. I mean, she's been slowly gearing up to take another shot at the governorship. If you were to even have a discussion about potential other statewide offices she would be interested in running for in Georgia, 
that's at least off the table in the short term now because Democrats won the two Senate seats. So if that was something that ever crossed her mind as a potential thing she'd want to go for, that's sort of off the table at the moment. So it's like, you know, if she wants to hold top level statewide office in Georgia, it's it's governor. That's the option. You know, with Beto O'Rourke, I don't see quite as much strategy given the presidential bid. If his long-term plan was to win a statewide office in Texas, um, which was never going to be easy for a Democrat, uh, even if the state has been trending to a more competitive place statewide, running for president and taking some positions that, while pleasing to the base, could turn off some of the center-right types that you almost have to win over in Texas right now if you're a Democrat to have a shot at winning statewide. That, I think, is interesting, especially on certain things like on on certain gun rights positions, immigration issues. Running for president nationalized your work in a way that may not have helped him in a statewide contest. Now, at the same time, I think politics is so nationalized now that maybe it's worth noting that who knows how much that actually matters at the end of the day. It's harder and harder to separate yourself from sort of a national party brand now because a Democrat in state X is very similar to a Democrat in state Y now. There's not as much regional variation. That's true for Republicans too, though we do have some exceptions, I guess, with the Northeast, the GOP, some governors who've been successful there being very moderate. But I I do think generally things are so nationalized now that I don't want to like overstate that in O'Rourke's case. I was talking with Alex Samuels, our, our resident Texas expert, about this. And I was, you know, I was just kind of saying, like, what is the upside for Beto here? And we were talking about this issue of, you know, well, what else is he going to do with his time? It also it doesn't look great for him to lose yet again. It also doesn't look great for him to just sit there and twiddle his thumbs and wait for the next election. And Alex pointed out very smartly, I thought that he could do exactly what Stacey Abrams did. And he could say, you know, I'm going to do organizing in Texas. I'm going to do the behind the scenes on the ground work to try to tee everything up. You know, he could work for down-ballot Democrats. Like, he could set things in motion, and then maybe he runs again in some future election cycle that's more favorable. And that was compelling to me. I did wonder why he would not do something like that. And I do feel that there may be a gender component to this, where men, we know this from the literature, are more likely to just say, you know what, I'll just run and we'll just see what happens. And women are more strategic and they're more likely to say, is this a race I can actually win? And I think it's important to remember that Stacey Abrams could have run for president in 2020. Some people were saying they wanted her to. She sat that one out. She's clearly been thinking these are my goals. This is how I'm going to achieve them. And that's very consistent with what we know about how women think about running for office. And again, the sort of like, well, people are asking me to run. Seems like a good time. Maybe I can do it this time is something that we see more often from male politicians. Not all male politicians, but in general, these are the patterns. Yeah, to that point, if listeners are interested in more of this conversation, 538 in the beginning of 2020 did a project in which we talked with 97 women who had run for office about what it was like to run for office. As part of that project, we did a one-on-one interview with our old colleague, Claire Malone, did an interview with Stacey Abrams in which they talked about not only what what was it like to run, but also Abrams' career path, essentially. And and we'll try and link to that on the website on 538.com. So I want to shift from... Abrams and O'Rourke, two high-profile candidates who are running, to the 19 House Democrats who have decided not to run, the latest being 
Representative Peter DeFazio of Oregon, who had 36 years in Congress and said, enough is enough. Democrats are holding on to an extremely slim majority in the House in what's likely to be a bad midterm for them, especially in the House where already they were showing signs of weakness even in a year when they won the presidency in, in 2020. So how do you square the circle? You've got two high-profile people coming in. You've got almost 20 Democrats coming out who were incumbents and likely would have had some type of advantage. Are they seeing what Abrams and O'Rourke aren't, or is this also a case of just super local decision-making? Oh, I think it's pretty clear that they're looking at a tough midterm environment for Democrats and are saying, well, if I'm Peter DeFazio and you know I'm chair of, I think, what House Transportation and Republicans are probably going to be the majority. I've been here a long time. I think he's been in there for about 30 years. You know, maybe it's time to retire because I don't want to stick around for another Republican majority where I have very little say since the House is such a such a majoritarian institution. You know, the Senate, at least theoretically, still has some element of compromise and consensus, whereas the House is very much whichever party controls the majority runs the show. So I think you have to look at that in the context of DeFazio. You can see of the 19 Democrats who have retired, 11 of them would be best categorized as pure retirements, which is to say they are not seeking another office. Um, They're just retiring. They're not thinking, oh, I have like another opportunity. Whereas for Republicans, they've got 11 people who are leaving office from the House, and of those, seven are running for another office. So I think those Republicans see an opportunity to maybe move up, win a Senate seat or something. Whereas on the Democratic side, especially in a, in a fair number of competitive seats, they're saying, I don't want to fight for re-election again, and I'm not even looking at running for another office necessarily. And so I think that fits in historically with data we've seen in the past. It's like, generally speaking, the president's party sees more of those types of retirements than the out party more often than not. So it sort of aligns with what you would expect, given what we know about the midterm environment right now. We don't know how it'll actually play out, but what we know right now. So Jeff, this is not a redistricting thing. This is not because there's Districts are shifting, and so people are saying, I'd rather bow out. That is a wrinkle that we have to consider that's at least part of some lawmakers' decisions. You know, with DeFazio, though, his seat actually was made more Democratic-leaning than it had been previously. It was actually a very 50-50 seat before, and now it's notably more Democratic-leaning than not because Democrats in Oregon controlled redistricting, and they managed to get a map that uh, made a seat better for them. But he decided it's not worth sticking around even with that going for him. Now, there are other individuals, I think, where redistricting probably played at least some role in their in their calculations. You know, like Charlie Crist is running for governor of Florida again. I think partly because he wants to be governor again. He's shown that. This is his, I guess, third run for governor. He's been governor for a term, came back, lost as a Democrat, now is running again as a Democrat. At the same time, though, we know that Republicans control redistricting in Florida, so there's a chance that his district will end up being more Republican-leaning than it is right now, and maybe it'd be hard for him to win re-election. You know, that's just as an example. And Tim Ryan is running for Senate in Ohio, and he probably did that partly because his district is gone, basically. The, the one that he was in previously has been torn up in redistricting, so he knew he didn't really have a, a good fallback option there. So he's taking a shot at, at a statewide bid, even if it's an uphill one. Uh, so redistricting is part of the conversation, there's no doubt. I just think... On the whole, you can look at these individual decisions and see a greater amount of Democratic worry than Republican worry. 
On that note, our generic ballot tracker, which essentially asks Americans if the elections were held today, would you vote for a Democrat or Republican for office? Democrats had led in that average when we first launched and had polls going back to April. But here in mid-November, Republicans have taken the lead. And granted, it's a less than a percentage point lead, but already, you know, a little bit less than a year out, Republicans kind of in the national environment, as Jeffrey's suggesting, as we're seeing in retirements, are advantaged. Right. And actually, to that point, Sarah, you know, Nathaniel Rakich, our colleague, he put together some data on the trajectory of the generic ballot from well before the election to where it ends up. And it tends to trend against the president's party. So if Republicans have taken a very narrow lead in our average, there's a decent chance, based on history, that that lead will grow, not shrink, as we go uh, into 2022 and get closer to the actual election. Now, there are exceptions where that has not played out, and so maybe 2022 will prove to be an exception, but at least more often than not, that's what's happened. So if you're a lawmaker considering your options right now, that history, uh, if you're a Democrat, doesn't make you terribly confident that that your position is going to improve markedly. So I want to talk then about the Republicans who are and aren't running for office there's a high-profile Republican in New Hampshire, Governor Chris Sununu, who decided not to run for Senate. He basically said the Senate's a crappy place to work, and I'd rather not. And I think that regardless of your political beliefs, you could see how someone would arrive at that conclusion. But at the same time, you have some high-profile Republicans getting in a primary race, like Dr. Oz in, in Pennsylvania, who doesn't have a deep connection with Pennsylvania, but has chosen to try and become senator of Pennsylvania. And so I'm curious as you guys see the Republican field shaping up in an election that is likely to lean Republican, do you see the candidate pool that can help deliver on the potential? Politico had an article outlining what was going on in the House. And that seemed to be a pretty coherent strategy in the sense that party recruiters were telling them that in some of these target swing districts, they're aiming for people who have either like a military background, a background in defense, something to do with national security. Because as we saw with Democrats in the 2018 midterms, some of the more moderate districts, that profile played well. And so there seems to be a strategy and emphasis on that and that going well. But as you were saying, Chad, for at least some of the Senate races, and I'm curious to hear what Amelia and Jeffrey think, I've been scratching my head more there because the candidates like Sununu, who have the credentials who you think would want to run, would be a good pick for the GOP, aren't interested. And so Sean Parnell, who was mired in this nasty custody fight with his wife where he was alleged to have choked her, to have hit one of his children, he withdrew from the Pennsylvania Senate race. And now Dr. Oz has entered because he lost the custody battle. And that was like the Trump-endorsed candidate that the GOP was rallying behind. Similarly, in Georgia, you now have Herschel Walker, who will take on Warnock in the Senate there. And he hasn't lived in the state for years and also has a troubling background of abuse, and that will come out in the primary. And so, right, we said Oz in Missouri, Eric Greitens, who resigned from office in scandal in 2018, is now kind of the front runner there. I can't really make heads or tails of the Senate matchups at this point that the GOP is feeling. I'm curious for y'all's thoughts. I have a theory, which is just that in the era of the pandemic, I think we have been seeing a lot more of what governors can actually do. 
and seeing that this is a powerful position and that it has a lot of control over how people live their lives. And Congress is, as Chad was saying, I don't know how it is as a work environment. I don't work there. I think if you are interested in getting specific things done, it is not probably the most fulfilling environment to be in. And I would guess all the more so after 2022, when it seems like we are heading for divided government. So I wonder if part of it is just that the people who have the profile to run for Senate, who really have the name recognition to think about statewide office, would just rather not do Senate. And, you know, like Sununu, already governor, maybe just genuinely prefers that job, feels like that's a job where you can actually get things done. You can have an impact on the people that you're serving. And going to the Senate feels like, well, it's prestigious. But if I'm someone who has specific political goals, this is not actually a place where I'm going to be able to get anything done. How that pertains to Dr. Oz is a little less clear to me because I don't know what his goals are politically, so I presumably he will elaborate more on that. I think he said that he was inspired to run because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the government taking away people's liberties, but I, I don't know that he's been more specific than that. So TBD on him. But I guess that's my theory, that it's frustrating to be in Congress right now. And if you're governor of a state, you can actually have a tangible impact on people's lives in a way that you may find much more satisfying as a politician. But can you get on cable news as often? That's the real question. No. And that's... <laughs> I mean, maybe that's a bonus no, too, Chad. Time. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, I think to Amelia's point, I mean, I was going to mention that, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that governors in these states where there are high profile democratic seats that are up that could you know swing the balance of power in a what looks to be potentially a republican leaning midterm year haven't taken the plunge you know Doug Ducey he's term limited out he's not doing anything in Arizona after the 2022 election opted not to run for senate and in this case it's not because he's going to stick around as governor but maybe he's like I'll go back to the private sector and I think he uh, one time at least owned an ice cream chain. Maybe he'll get back into that or something uh, rather than go to the Senate and talk a lot, you know, bloviate. But they'd be in power in the Senate. That's what I don't get. Like we're talking about Republicans who like in theory would be the majority in Congress. I mean, I realize it would still be divided government, but that's at least better than the minority. But it's a majority, but it's not 60 votes, right? Like, I wonder if this is really right. what leads to Senate reform, is that no one wants to run for Senate. Well, and you, and you have a Democrat in the White House. I think another factor in here that's inescapable is the role of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. You know, in the case of someone like Ducey, maybe Mitch McConnell could have convinced him to run, but there's Trump attacking Ducey for basically not trying to halt the certification of Democratic electors in Arizona, you know, signing off on it and uh, basically becoming a persona non grata to Trump and Trump making that clear. You know, in the case of a state like Georgia, Herschel Walker became Trump's guy pretty early on. There are other things going on. But Brian Kemp is now in trouble in his governor's race because he didn't try to, like, interfere with the election, basically, and do Trump's bidding in Georgia. Mark Burnovich in Arizona, who's the state attorney general there, is running for Senate, but he's gotten some pushback from Trump because he didn't go out of his way to try to say that the election was rigged. And so he's not 
maybe not Trump's preferred candidate there, and that could end up being a, a hindrance for him in the Republican primary. So I think Trump is you know, inescapably part of this as well. And I think in the Senate, it's much more high profile. It's a statewide race. Individual districts matter to some extent, but I think in terms of just the, the amount of attention that that these races will have is, is much larger than an individual House race. So I think we can see it more clearly in the Senate that Trump is playing a major role in candidate decision-making. Okay, we almost made it the whole segment without citing Trump, but Jeffrey, I'm glad that you did bring him up because of course he is such a significant force that, that hangs over everything in the midterms and potentially beyond. I think we should end the show, guys. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for chatting. Thank you, thank you all. Jeffrey, a pleasure. Thanks, Chad. And Amelia, glad we could put your comparative religion grad degree into such good use today. I know. It's really making me feel like those two years were super, super worth it. <laughs> you paid off your student debt with every extra word that you got to say uh, about, about religion and politics. Yeah, that's definitely how it works. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Chad. My name is Chad Matlin. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegare Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. That will do it for today's show. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. Galen reads that inbox when he is feeling healthy and up for it. You can, of course, tweet at us with questions or comments. Tweet Galen, leave me out of it. I, I don't even check Twitter. Just tell Galen how much you missed him. Uh, if you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.